Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be tonight. Matthew chapter 5, continuing in the series, the Sermon on the Mount. So a quick review, or I guess trivia, if you will, uh, without looking at your Bibles, can someone list off the first two Beatitudes by memory? Anybody? By memory. First two Beatitudes. What are they? Without looking at your Bible or on the screen. Mike, you got them? Yeah, I mean, it's good, but what the whole verse? Oh, okay. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Good enough. Good job. All right. And tonight, blessed are the... What? What did you say? Peacemakers? Uh, we're not there yet. Uh, blessed are the meek. Yes, blessed are the meek for what? They shall inherit the earth. Very good. Now, we're going to talk about what meekness is. And then I'm going to give a kind of contrasting application uh, from another passage of Scripture. Because when you study the Sermon on the Mount and really see what Jesus is talking about, um, you've got to understand that, yes, he's talking to a specific audience. But you also have to understand the audience around him at that time. You know, one thing I've loved, not, not really in, in correlation with this study, but, uh, you know, been watching finally season two of The Chosen. Uh, if you watch, watch The Chosen, anybody? Like, I think it's awesome. I think it's great. Um, it's one of the best ones I think they've ever put together on, like, the life of Jesus. So we're on season two, and I think the last episode is he's preparing for the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm ready to watch that, anxious about it. But, you know, you think about the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and a lot of times when Jesus was talking, he's addressing some of those particular types of people. You know, a couple weeks ago in, in our services on Sunday, we talked about the difference of the uh, legalism versus grace. And that's a huge deal for the Pharisee crowd and Pharisaical crowd. And we still have that issue today in our churches. And really, um, I'm saying all that because when, when you look at this sermon, this Sermon on the Mount, I think, yes, Jesus is specifically talking to his disciples, but there are also others that he was probably addressing. And I think we can look at other passages of Scripture and make some application, make some correlation in the life of Christ. And that's what I want to do a little bit later in the message tonight. Um, I came across uh, this, just, it's actually a, just a question or a phrase, and I, I want you to just think about it for just a minute uh, from another pastor. He put it out there and he said, finish this sentence. Jesus became real when dot, dot, dot. Now think about that. Jesus became real when. So think about your own life. When did Jesus become real for you? Uh, I don't necessarily want you right now to answer that out loud, but he said he received, within a few hours, he received hundreds of responses. And I want to list some of them tonight. He said some of them were very general. Uh, Jesus became real when I could no longer pretend that I was in control. Uh, another one, I had to admit that I could not fix things. I knew I wasn't strong enough. I had no one else to turn to. I had disappointed everyone who ever loved me. Uh, he said some of the responses were very specific. Um, Jesus became real when I was told I had three months to live because of stage four cancer. Um, Jesus became real when I found out my husband was having an affair and I never felt more alone in my life. Um, uh, Jesus became real uh, when it became clear that I had lost control of my addiction. Um, uh, Jesus became real. Here's another very specific one. Uh, when he reached down into one of the darkest places on earth, a strip club, to show me he loved me, and I realized there was no place he couldn't find me. Um, Jesus became real when my depression became uh, too much for me to bear, when I was 
forced out of a 30-year job and had no idea where I was going. Uh, when my husband was killed in a car accident, when the ultrasound said the baby's heart had stopped beating. So a lot of good responses, and there's so much more. I don't have time to talk about them all. Um, but I think, it was re- I think that was good kind of in relation to this series because what we're talking about in the Sermon on the, on the Mount specifically, we've entitled it The End of Me, Coming to the End of Ourselves. Because again, this is a very paradoxical sermon. Uh, again, what's, what's up is down, what's down is up. And that's really the idea that we're trying to unpack tonight and really within the next several, le- several weeks and several lessons that Jesus came, so to speak, to flip the script on what the culture was saying. And, and, and the more I was reading and studying and praying about that this week, you know, I started looking at other scriptures. What he was saying was so counterintuitive to the culture around him, but it wasn't concerning the Bible. Because some of the principles that Jesus is laying out in this sermon are things that were already... Uh, have already been said through the ages back in the Old Testament when you study it out. And in understanding this end of me series and and what the connotation is, uh, the author of the book, The End of Me, says this, reaching the end of me is a daily journey that I must make because it's where Jesus shows up and my real life in him begins. And that's what we're trying to discover, that real life in Jesus begins when we come to the end of ourselves. Um, and you think about that question, why would I want to come to the end of me? Well, there's a lot of things, because in the world, a lot of people are looking for happiness, for success, and a lot of people in the world, they want to be loved and to love. They want to make a difference. They, they want to leave well, and honestly, these are things that we will unpack and learn about in this uh, Sermon on the Mount, and really in just some of these Beatitudes. And I know I'm taking my time, but I think it's very important to take our time. We could easily do a, an overview of all of the Beatitudes and then continue on. But I really want to kind of uh, take my time and kind of go uh, verse by verse to really just unpack what the, the, the scriptural meaning is, as well as what other scripture references are, and then given the application for us tonight as well. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, again, the verse says, Blessed are the meek. This is the third beatitude that he lays out. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And what we're going to look at is a couple principles and then the application. First thing I want to see is this, meekness defined. Meekness defined. Nelson's Bible Dictionary defines meekness as this. It's an attitude of humility towards God and gentleness towards men springing from a recognition that God is in control. Although weakness and meekness may look similar, they are not the same. Weakness is due to negative circumstances, such as lack of strength or, <coughs> excuse me, lack of courage. But meekness is due to a person's conscious choice. It is strength and courage under control, coupled with kindness. So Meekness, as many of us may know, may not know, meekness really does not mean weakness. Sometimes people are like, oh, it just means weakness. It's a weak individual. It's not. Really, the best way to describe it, and it's the title of the lesson tonight, is strength under control. And again, that's what we're going to try to unpack tonight a little bit. This word comes from the Greek word praus. And there are three specific examples, and I want to look at them a little bit later, but there are three specific examples of what this word is in the Greek connotation and what it means for us today. And I love uh, studying some of these words, and especially I think of a couple years ago, probably three years ago on Easter Sunday, I preached um, really one word, 
the one word on the, on the cross, one of the sayings, tetelestai. And when you study it out in the Greek language of what all the, the significance of that one word means, uh, it was just a powerful thing. And really, same is true for this. Uh, a couple things about this word praos or praus, uh, three specific examples. It was used to describe a soothing medicine. Another example, it was used by sailors to describe a gentle breeze. It was also used by farmers to describe a broken colt or a broken horse. Not literally breaking them, but kind of breaking them of their will. And uh, that's the illustration that many have used. And we're going to use that as well tonight. All three of these are important. But again, this doesn't mean the individual is weak. Rather, it means not that they're giving up their power, but they're learning to use their power under control. And again, any, of, any one of us that have ever ridden a horse, we understand that the, the horse itself is a very powerful animal, is it not? Now, if a, if a horse is wild, they are unbridled, they have not been tamed, they have not been meat, and they run uh, all over the place, and you try to, to, to get on one of those horses, it's going to be a nightmare. Uh, there's a good chance they're going to uh, buck and kick and, and try to uh, knock you off. I'm sure, Brother Allen, you probably experienced some of that, right? Uh, with, with horses in the past. Uh, quick example, J. Wallace Hamilton, he wrote a book called Ride the Wild Horse. In it, he points out that when God made us, when God created us, when God put us together, God put into our nature certain drives, certain instincts, certain ambitions, and they are not evil in themselves. But these drives, these instincts, these ambitions need to be yielded. And he pointed out what I want to point out in the word meekness as an idea of a wild stallion being broken. As a matter of fact, in that day, he said, and sometimes still in this day, when a, 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 a seed, an animal, especially a horse, had been domesticated, uh, it had been trained so a rider can sit upon its back um, or so it can pull a plow. The proper term for that was that the horse, the animal, the ox, whatever, had been meeked. So to be meeked was to be taken from a state of wild rebellion and made completely loyal to, dependent upon one's master. Again, that, that idea is very significant, very important in this lesson, this understanding of this text. And maybe we've heard this before, but there's so much more to it than that. Again, you think of the horse connotation, you think of that, that illustration, a powerful animal. The horse does not lose its power, does it? No, still just as powerful. It learns how to use its power because it's been meeked and in a sense it's been broken. Now that animal yields to who? To the rider. Now it yields to the yoke if it's an oxen. So meekness defined, the definition of meekness, really it's strength under control, the best way to describe it. Going on quickly, meekness portrayed. Several examples are given to us in the Bible of what meekness looks like in individuals. The Bible uh, gives us great definition in different passages of individuals who were meek. And one of the greatest examples, we'll get to in just a second, in the Bible outside of Jesus is the man Moses, who was called meek. But uh, there's several examples that I've seen. First of all, Abraham. You think about Abraham. He gave Lot the choice of land in Genesis 13. He could have easily said, you know what? I'm the oldest. I get the first choosing. I should get the best. Instead, what did he do? He preferred Lot. He allowed Lot to choose first. Verse 14 of Genesis 13 tells us that after he did that, the Lord gave him the land as far as he could see. The Lord blessed him. I think of Joseph. Um, Joseph was mistreated. He was 
falsely accused, he was thrown into prison. And now think about your own situation here. If you were falsely accused, if you were thrown into prison for something you didn't do, how many would be very thankful for that? Anybody? Probably not. How many, if, if it was your siblings, your brothers or sisters or someone in your family that did that to you and you got a chance to see them finally, you'd just be all like loving over them and welcoming them? Anybody? Probably not, right? There ain't no way. Uh, we'd go fight, you know, all on war, whatever it is. Uh, there's no way. But again, God had used that terrible situation in Joseph's life, exalted him. And his, when his brothers, that, that's the awesome thing about the story and the, the, um, the, the account that when his brothers came begging for food, he had the power to get even, didn't he? He had the power to get revenge. But what did he do? He showed them loving kindness and mercy, uh, what they did not deserve. You know, meekness really in that situation, it's the opposite of violence and vengeance. It's that power under control. I think of David. He was anointed to be king, but Saul was hunting him down like an animal. And on two occasions, at least in the Bible that we know of, David had opportunity to kill Saul. But did he? No. Now you think about the situation where literally Saul was asleep in the tent. How many have heard that story? It's a pretty cool story. Saul's asleep in the tent. David sneaks up on him. And literally, he has a chance to kill him there in his bed asleep. But what does he do? Anybody know the rest of the story? What does he do? What? Yeah, he cuts part of his robe off and really kind of showing him what he could do. But again, I think he learned to, to restrain himself and honor really the Lord in that situation and Saul's position that he was king. Moses, he, he saw the injustice of his people. Uh, and, and in his, his own anger, in his you know, previous life, I mean, not like he had many lives, but uh, early on in his life, he, he killed an Egyptian. He was very righteous in his anger, and, and he killed an Egyptian, you know, really wrongfully. So what God did was that God put him on the backside of the desert for 40 years. And, and really what God did in Moses' life was he broke him of his own stubbornness. You know, sometimes we need to be broken of our own stubbornness, don't we? We've, how many are very hard-headed? Anybody? would like to admit that. All right, very good. Um, <laughs> it's funny looking at the uh, couples and stuff like that. Yep, you are. Uh, <laughs> so with that being said, are you pointing to your dad or your mom, Ethan? He was just like, Mom? Oh, you're pointing to Aaron. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Gotcha, I wasn't sure. Um, stubbornness. What, <laughs> what are some reasons for our stubbornness? Let's, let's, let's ask that question tonight. What are some reasons for our stubbornness, those stubborn individual people that raised your hand? Anybody want to admit something? Kate, you got something? Say that a little bit louder. So when you were younger, you got treated like a king? Is that what you said? Okay. Man, it's ringing. Sorry. Just got me. You got something, darling? No, I said, what's Oh. <laughs> we'll just leave that one alone. <laughs> what else? What are some reasons for stubbornness sometimes? That's good. Violet and then uh, Marcus? Sometimes they think of a better idea or opinion. That's good. Marcus? Having to be right. Oh, oh. Anybody like that tonight? Randy? Is it you? I mean, he's, yeah, yeah. Is it? He doesn't have, I mean, he was kind of like. 
I don't know if he was saying you or him. Was it you or him or her? Do we? Okay, we're not going to get there. <laughs> Whoa. Does he need to be meeked? <laughs> Man, this is getting good. Uh, what else? What are some reasons for our own stubbornness? I like this. Anybody else? David? It's called pride, yes. And we're going to look at that here in a few minutes. But uh, anybody else have anything? Amanda? I think sometimes you don't want to get walked all over, so you just prefer to, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile kind of a thing. That's good. Like, uh-uh. Don't want to get walked all over, so you want to do the walking on someone else. So, yeah. And that's just what you do. <laughs> yeah, that's where we're going to stop right there. <laughs> Stephanie? <laughs> I was going to say, I think sometimes it's a response to trauma. Oh, okay, that's good. Yeah. I think sometimes, yeah, that's true. Sometimes our stubbornness is response to trauma. It's a defense mechanism. Anybody else have something else? Yeah, Adam? Expectation. That's good. Expectation sometimes, yeah. Uh, maybe one more. Yeah, Jason? I think sometimes people mistake stubbornness for needing an explanation of why. Okay. Yeah, yeah, needing that explanation of why. That's good. Those are all good, good stuff. Um, you know, kind of tying that back to to Moses, again, he, he was very stubborn, very stubborn individual, thinking his way was right. And God had to break him of his own stubbornness and really give him the strength, the bridled strength to lead the nation of Israel. Not in the wrong way, like, all right, let's go and kill all the Egyptians. Uh, that's probably how I would have done it. Let's destroy these people that have enslaved us and messed us up for, for generations. But Moses learned to control uh, all of that anger. And really, he was the meekest man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth other than Jesus. Numbers 12.3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men that were on the face of the earth. That's a, that's a high compliment. Not necessarily in our day, but it was a very high compliment, especially in the Bible. Uh, you think of Paul. Before Paul got saved, he was a terrorist, killing and arresting, arresting Christians. But God did something in his life. What did he do? He blinded him. He broke him on the road to Damascus and brought him to his knees in humble submission before a holy God. You know, the ultimate example, obviously, is Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who uh, was led um, like a lamb to the slaughter, yet he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53 says that. You think about all that Jesus could have done, and yet he did nothing. doesn't mean he wasn't strong. It showed his strength. And sometimes, just a simple thing of keeping our mouth shut, right? That shows our strength. You know, sometimes we think, oh, I have to say something. Well, sometimes in our saying something, we show our stupidity, not our humility or not our meekness. And sometimes keeping our mouth shut is the best thing that we can do because it's showing that our strength is under control. First um, Peter 2 talks about it as well, about Jesus. Uh, another thing quickly, and then we'll, we'll make, move on to the application, which we're like, really we're going to focus on tonight. We see meekness rewarded. Again, this verse, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Inheritance typically comes when? When does someone get an inheritance? When you die, right? When someone else dies. Not when you die, but uh, yeah, when you die, you finally get your inheritance. Uh, It's wrong, right? Right, Stephanie? Is that wrong? Yeah, that's wrong. Uh, (laughs) Just making sure. Uh, When someone else dies... You get the inheritance. Um, I, I shouldn't ask it. I got to say it now, but you know, don't don't please don't raise your hand. But how many have ever like almost wishfully like I hope someone else dies so I get an inheritance? Don't don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I need someone I don't know that really needs to go to heaven. Yeah, and wants to leave me millions of dollars. 
I'm someone that's like 115, you know, well past, you know, exactly. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. I'm, we probably all thought that. Please don't acknowledge it right now. Um, but anyway, some of you are like probably looking at your parents if they're in here. Like, is it your time yet? Like, please don't do that. Uh, anyway, uh, man, sorry. I don't know what I did before church, but anyway. Uh, inheritance typically comes when someone dies. And before we inherit the earth, we must come to the end of ourselves. We have to stop taking matters into our own hands, being impatient, being proud, being arrogant, being strong-willed. We are to be yielded by God, to God, under the control of the Holy Spirit. There is only one way to heaven, it's through Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that God has given his Son a name which is highly exalted above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, uh, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, but the reward for meekness, and I, I want to kind of stop here on this part, is inheriting the earth. And again, we'll, we'll explain this more tonight, but also in weeks to come. There are so many characteristics, and this is where I really want to focus on for just a few minutes tonight. There's so many characteristics about meekness that we can talk about and have talked about. But I want to close with a very needed application. It was already kind of mentioned tonight a little bit. You know, I think about our stubbornness. We go back to that question or that, that comment. Many times in our own stubbornness, I think it's because of our own pride, right? We are very prideful individuals. So let me ask this question before I get into this. Why are we so prideful? Why do we struggle so much with pride? I mean, the simple answer is because of our sin nature. But let's try to go a little bit deeper. Why do we struggle so much with pride? Venetia? We want control. We want control. That's great. I mean, we could sum it up with just that. Mike? That's good. I mean, yeah, superlative of everything. Smartest, best, richest, whatever. That's, that's great. Uh, what else? Why do we struggle so much with our pride? Anyone else? Yes, Jocelyn? Yeah, striving to be the most popular, one that has the most stuff. And by doing that, we become very proud in what we have and what we've accomplished. That's good. Yeah, Tyler? Yeah, yeah, we struggle with it. We don't even acknowledge that we're being prideful when we're doing it. That's great. Marcus? I think, I think we're more concerned about our outcomes than we are right Yeah, that's great. Uh, I think more, ex- uh, more concerned about the externals yeah. is really what he was saying. More, more concerned about the externals, what's on the outside, than the internals. And again, I, I think of this sermon specifically, and this is where I want to draw the application tonight. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 18, because... Here's where I'm going to try to bring it all together. Again, a lot of the Bible obviously parallels itself, and there's so many passages that we can look to that are parallel passages with this. This is one that I think you can easily parallel. It's not necessarily meant to, but I think, again, we have to understand who Jesus' audience is and also who is the audience in the surrounding area and what is he dealing with. You think about the Pharisees. We've talked a lot about Pharisees within the church and within that culture. Pharisees were those that, you know, we've got to hold to the religious standard, the religious rules. And yet the, the, the contrary thing, the almost funny thing is, is half the time there were certain things that they would not do themselves. 
that they wouldn't hold to, but they wanted to hold you to a certain standard. We all know people like that. That, you know, I'm not going to live this way, but you better live this way. Almost, you know, you know do as I, I say, not as I do type mentality. So Jesus met, was met with a lot of very proud, arrogant, uh, pharisaical individuals in this day. And the, the passage here in, in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14 is where we're going to be. It gives us a great phenomenal picture. And I think it really helps us paint the point even further. You know, what Jesus was really uh, talking about here in this uh, Sermon on the Mount was those who were directionally challenged. Again, he is saying to us that the way up is down, and actually the way, up, or the way down is up and the way up is down. And what we see here in Luke chapter 18, let me just read this, verse number 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves. And I, and I love that phrase right there. So we have those who are trusting in themselves, which means they are self-confident, they are smug, they are arrogant, they are condescending. Anybody know the type? Uh, don't answer out loud who those type are. Uh, but anyway, we know the type. Smug, arrogant, self-confident uh, in their own righteousness, these are those that are looking down on other people. Again, do we, do we know people like that in our own lives? Now, just, just remember that. Again, it's very easy to see that in everyone else, and I think it was even mentioned, but it's, sometimes it's hard to see it in ourselves, isn't it? It's very hard to see it in ourselves. You know, and, and just this verse, it's setting it up. You know, he's speaking this parable to those that are trusting in themselves, very self-confident, self-reliant, uh, <clears throat> condescending, smug, arrogant, prideful, that were righteous, they despised others, they looked down on others. You know, it's just, it's, it's, you know, these are the people that, you know, they have that air about them. They think they're better than everyone else, you know, especially those around them. And it's, it's as if that, you know, even when you're around them, when you're in their company, like you're blessed by being in their presence, right? <laughs> Don't you love those people? Just a great thing. Um, but anyway, uh, but we do this honestly with a lot of people. We do this when we elevate people in our family. We do this when we elevate people in our church or people in our government. We're no different here. Um, but let's continue on. Verse number 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. So I love this picture that Jesus paints here in this parable. So we have one is a Pharisee and the other is a publican. He's a sinner. It's basically what this is talking about. The Pharisee, this religious leader, thinking he's so high and mighty and full of himself, and, you know, I'm following all the rules, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, I love this. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. <laughs> now, it starts out, you think it's great if you just, you know, stop with the first four words. God, I thank thee. You know, we should thank God in our prayers, shouldn't we? But he doesn't stop there. God, I thank thee for your loving kindness, for your mercy, for your grace, uh, for your goodness, for all that you've done. Is that how we finish the prayer? No. Um, God, I thank you that I'm not as other men are. <laughs> Basically, God, thank you so much that I'm not as bad as that person over there. Thank you so much that I'm not as bad as that idiot that I'm looking at. I mean, I'm, I'm reading into the, the text here, but that's what he's saying. God, I thank you that I am not as other men are. And then he points out who these other people are. And again, he is praying within himself, and he's praying probably out loud so that others can hear him. You know, again, let's look at me. It's all about me. Thank you that I am not an extortioner, that I am not unjust, that I am not an adulterer, uh, that I'm not even as this publican, this other guy across the room that's praying. Thank you. 
And then he goes on and lists some things about himself. You know, I think you look at these verses 11 and 12, and um, if my calculations are right, four times you see the word I. I. I thank you. I I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So again, he's, he's telling all about himself, right? Very arrogant, very boastful. Now, again, I, I like the, the interaction here. What would you think of an individual if they did this? If you're in a crowd of people and they stand up and they start praying, so to speak, or they just start boasting about how awesome they are, what would you think? Honestly, what would you think? David? Okay. I think they feel inferior. inferior. That's probably true. And a lot of times people do that. You know, they struggle with high insecurities about themselves. They want to make themselves feel better. That's good. Mia? They're stupid. Okay. With the capital S. We shouldn't say that word. Uh, I don't think so, right? Ella's like, I can't believe you said that word in church. Randy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really what he's saying is they're not worth the flip. I mean, honestly, because they're boasting themselves up, but they're not that individual. They're just trying to make themselves look good. Marcus? I would say they're probably the most insecure person ever. Yeah, I think it goes back to that. And I think we can all probably uh, leave it at that. Anybody else have something to say if, if, if you were to experience that? <laughs> I mean, anybody? I would think he was a jerk. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I, I like the honesty. Uh, I think he's a jerk. I mean, like, who do you think you are? Like, literally. Like, you think you're so much better than everyone else? Violet? Um, I would, uh, Don't say you think it's Andrew, please. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You go with friends of the publican instead? Why is that? He doesn't act the way the Pharisee did. You're getting ahead of me. But that's good. I'm not there yet. But thank you for reading ahead. That's good. That's good. Again, this, this Pharisee, you know, again, I, I am such a great individual. I am awesome. You know, when we read and hear descriptions like this of certain individuals, it's easy. Now, listen to this. Listen to this. This is where the application comes in tonight. It's easy to think of others who fit this description, isn't it? How many in your mind already have thought of individuals who are like, oh, that's them. I know a person like that. After church, we can talk and you can list them. No, 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 please, please, please. Just kidding. Um, now, no, no, let's ask another question. We're trying to get real here. How many of, honestly, this, this is good because I've done this. I've done this and I struggle with some of these things that I'm going to talk about. How many have ever listened to a message and immediately thought, I really hope so-and-so is listening to this? Hey, we got some honest people. How many are doing that right now? <coughs> Ella. She didn't even know what she's talking about. All right, very good. Um, <laughs> we've all done that. We, we listen to something, and, and not saying that those people don't need to hear it, right? Um, honestly, you know, when I prepare messages, I don't necessarily specifically prepare them for individual people, thinking like, okay, this is really for Marcus, because he's just a stuck-up, you know, no. Uh, I don't think that, but honestly, I would be foolish to say that I don't think of individuals as I prepare messages. Because there's times where I prepare and I'm like, man, I really think this could help this individual. 
that this could be a blessing. And honestly, usually when I think that kind of stuff, those people aren't even there. And I'm like, man, I need to like share it with them on Facebook or something so that they could hear it. You still don't listen to it probably. But anyway, uh, we've all done that. You know, we've, we've listened to messages, immediately thought, man, I, I really hope so-and-so is listening to this. But, you know, going back to that, that list of descriptions of that high, mighty, arrogant, you know, smug individual, listen to this. As soon as we assign these descriptors to other people, listen to this. We ourselves are becoming the very people Jesus is addressing. Let me say that again. It's not in your notes. I probably should have put it in your notes. As soon as we, dis- we assign these descriptors to other people, thinking, yes, that person is smug, they're arrogant, they're condescending. Some people are. L- 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 don't, don't get me wrong. But as soon as we start thinking, yeah, they are just a worthless piece of scum. <laughs> We're no different than the Pharisees, are we? Oh, we like to think we are. No, no, no. I, I'm not that way. I'm just pointing out who they are. I would never be that way. Well, this is what we do. We think, how applicable is this for other people? Instead of, I wonder if this fits me. I wonder if God can do something in my life with this. But again, I'm guilty of this. Listen, trust me. I am guilty of hearing messages or even studying, and I'm like, man, man, Tyler needs this. <laughs> I not really thought that yet. Might happen next week, but uh, <laughs> I, I've done that, and you've done that. And again, not that it can't be helpful, but again, instead of thinking, how can this apply to me? We think, I really hope they're getting it, right? I really hope they're listening right now. And sometimes, you know, it's funny looking around, husbands and wives, they're sitting together like, dude, you, you, you hearing this? I go back and listen to the tape. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be helpful. Um, get this down. Fake humility expresses itself in a pride that is obvious to everyone else but the speaker. And this is what's going on here in this passage in Luke chapter 18. Fake humility. You know, he is uh, kind of acting like this person who is very humble. I'm humble. I mean, I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I possess. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But fake humility expresses itself in a pride that is obvious to everyone but the speaker. And again, the reality is most of us are more proud and prideful than we would like to admit, aren't we? Again, it's very easy to see it in someone else. Sometimes it's hard to see it in ourselves. Or we see it, but I'm not that bad, right? I'm not as bad as that person. I mean, again, look at Marcus over there. I'm not as bad as him. I don't want to pick on him too much because he's my church chiropractor. So uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, in, uh, and I love the application from some of the things that I found. In, in Kyle Adelman's book, The End of Me, he gives a great analogy, and I, I've adjusted some of them, and I've got them in your notes tonight. He, he gives a list, and I didn't give all of them, but I, I gave some, and it's this. You might be a Pharisee if. <laughs> um, it's pretty funny, but honestly, it's very telling, because even as I was rereading this, I think I was reading it again on Monday, and uh, I called Amanda. I was like, man, this is like, this is hitting deep. It's cutting deep in my own life, and, 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 and I know it's going to cut deep in, in other people as well. 
But you might be a Pharisee if you catch yourself saying, I don't need any advice. (laughs) You don't need to correct me. Like we've all been there. You know what? I don't need the correction. (laughs) You see, this is the person who allows their pride to become defensive and unwilling to hear any criticism or any correction. I just want someone to be my friend and listen to me all the time and not correct me all the time. Well, that's honestly showing your own pride because I've been there. And sometimes even as a pastor, I'm like, I don't want someone to correct me. Who do they think they are? I mean, I know nothing, but who are they? And honestly, this is, it's telling. Honestly, it's, it's convicting. You catch yourself saying or thinking things like, I don't need any advice. I got it all figured out. You don't need to correct me. You know, this person is allowing their own pride to become defensive and unwilling to hear criticism or correction of others. And sometimes we need criticism. Not all criticism is bad, is it? Sometimes we need that constructive criticism to try to help us, to encourage us. Because as good as we think we are, we're still not that good. And again, we don't always see our own fault. Ask any husband and wife. They see the fault of the other person, right? <laughs> we see their faults. They might know of them, but it's not always to like, oh, well, pastor said I need to point out your faults. It's not what I'm saying either. But let's go on the flip side of this. The flip side might be thinking this. Listen, no one ever really gives me advice. Well, maybe it's not that you have it all together. Maybe they just know it's not going to be handled very well. So why even offer advice, right? You probably know people like that too. There's no way I'm going to give advice to this person because they're not going to handle it. But then they think, you know what? I don't need advice. Nobody ever gives it to me. So I got it all together. No, (laughs) you're too prideful to even see it. Uh, Here's another one. You catch yourself saying, you might be a Pharisee if, you catch yourself saying, I'm not going to be the one to apologize. (laughs) How long do we have tonight, right? Uh, The... (laughs) The most difficult thing for many of us to do is to admit that we may be wrong. I didn't say you are wrong. (laughs) I said you may be wrong. And (laughs) I am very guilty of this. My wife just left, so maybe she won't hear this. But (laughs) when we do apologize, we like to add qualifiers. I'm sorry, but... Or here's my favorite, because I do this too often and my wife has pointed it out too often. I'm sorry if, right? I'm sorry if you feel that way. Am I really apologizing to her? No. (laughs) You do that, Rodney? Why are you laughing? No, 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 don't don't answer it. Don't answer it. Don't answer it. (laughs) It's inherited. It's inherited. Man, this is good. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Those that are watching online, you are missing out. All two of you, whoever. Um... <laughs> but again, we have these qualifiers, and I've done this, and I am, I am very guilty of this, and really it's just showing my own pride because I don't want to admit that I'm wrong. You know, honey, I'm sorry if it offended you. Well, obviously it offended her because she's mad, she's upset with me. You know, she hasn't cooked anything for weeks, so obviously it's upset her. No, that hasn't happened, but um, so I'm sorry if it made you feel bad. Honestly, it just makes her even more mad when I do those things. So again, here I am thinking I'm doing what's right. I'm apologizing. 
but I'm adding these little qualifiers. So really, <laughs> I like that. You catch yourself saying, I, I'm, gonna apolo- or, I'm not going to be the one to apologize, or when we do, we add these qualifiers. Here's another thing. Uh, you might be a Pharisee if you catch yourself saying, it's not fair. <laughs> Here's a great clue. And, you know, we've actually been able to do this tonight. Celebrate with others. But if you have a hard time celebrating with others in their successes and victories, you're probably suffering from a case of pride. Now, many of us tonight, we, we celebrated with, with Billy for three years. Man, it's awesome. Celebrate with Adam and Casey. That's, that's an awesome thing. Celebrated with who? Sorry, what? Yeah, baby Blake. I'm like, who are you pointing to? The wall? Like what? We're celebrating the wall for being painted. Yes, baby Blake. You know, we're, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you know, we're celebrating things, and I, I think collectively as a church family, we're excited. But here, here, here's a here's a good thing to do. Uh, Amanda, she was sharing this with me. Something she read in one of her books, uh, and this is good, honestly. <laughs> I don't want to necessarily want you to do it tonight, but maybe in the future. If you, were, if you really want to know what people really think, here's something you can try. Tell someone else some good news about yourself or something good that happened to you and that you're excited about, and then watch their reaction to the news. So meaning, if something good happens to you, something you're excited about, tell someone else and then watch their reaction to the news to see if they're genuinely excited for you. Some of your husbands and wives are going to try this tonight. <laughs> hey, honey, I got the... Obviously, you don't care about me. You're prideful. You're a Pharisee. Uh, but I, I, she, she said she read that in the book, and I think it's a good thing. I, you know, because here's the reality. Here's what happens in this, this statement. It's not fair. Someone tells us some things, and we're like, you know, we have to, like, force the smile. Oh, that's exciting. You know, <laughs> I'm glad for you. <laughs> Great for you. I wish something like that would happen to me. You know? Must be nice that you got a brand new car when my car stinks, you know? Praise God. You know, honestly. But you know, I think it's very telling because we almost have to force it, right? We have to force our excitement because immediately sometimes we think this, right? It's not fair. How is that fair? Now, Again, I'm telling on myself in some of this tonight. But I, so I used to do this, and I know it's probably wrong, but um, I used to do this, you know, probably shouldn't say that, but anyway. Um, you know, someone would, would say something to me about, you know, something how they wouldn't think it was fair in their life, and then um, I'd play my own trump card, so to speak. I'm like, well, it must be nice to have a kid that's still alive. Uh, jokingly, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, that's what I said. It's probably not right, but in my youth, younger days, <laughs> I would do that um, sometimes to make people see what their reaction was. Sometimes it would just shut them up. I'm like, well, boom, I told you. What? Of course I did. I was like 26, but yes, I did. Um, and it was only to friends, really, honestly. It was like people that I really knew. It wasn't like some stranger. Well, must be nice. I don't even have a kid that's alive, so what? You know, I didn't do that, but... Again, I'm telling on myself a lot tonight, and I know you're going to get nothing out of this message. But again, I was just, um, just, I don't even know why it popped into my head. But the point I'm making of, you know, again, we think sometimes, man, it's not fair. It's not fair that they have that. And don't raise your hand, but who in here hasn't thought that at times, right? 
It's not fair that this is going on in their life because going back to my situation with Logan, I thought that. It's not fair that this baby is going to live more than likely and the parent never comes in here and yet our kid is struggling and then they die. That's not fair. But again, it's very prideful of myself to think that way. It really was. And it really, and it's same thing. If someone else has a great victory, you know, as Christians, what should we do? Be mad at them? No, rejoice with them, right? Because something awesome happened to them. You know, if someone got a new car, hopefully they didn't go into like $150,000 of debt, but if they got a new car, it meant rejoice with them. If they got a new house, if they got a new chicken or cow or whatever, you know, whatever exciting news that happens to you guys, rejoice with people. And that's really what God wants us to do, especially as Christians, rejoice with others. So it shows our pride when we have a hard time rejoicing with others because you know what? We're not thinking of others. I think of Philippians 2.4. Look not every man in his own things, but every man also in the things of others. So when we're truly thinking of others, we are showing our meekness because you know what? It's not just about me, and that's the Sermon on the Mount. It's about you as well. So if something good happened to Billy, praise God. We should be excited. We should rejoice with him and not like, good for you, but it didn't happen to me, you know? Or again, someone gets a bonus, someone gets a raise, like, oh, well, that's great, but I didn't get anything. Again, it's very easy to think that way, and that's why we have to stamp out that pride immediately if we can. Another thing, quickly, uh, we're getting way out of hand tonight. Um, you catch yourself saying, I don't need anyone else's help. You know, this goes back to the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, so to speak. You see, pride keeps us from realizing how desperately we need God. Another thing, and this, this, there's several more, a couple more, we're almost done, but this one, this one cuts deep with me, and I, I've had to over the years, not just as a pastor, but as a youth pastor and associate and just Christian in general, I've had to really ask God to help me with this. You catch yourself celebrating someone else's failure. Now think about that. Who in here hasn't been wronged by someone else? We all have. And it's very easy to think things like, they're going to get theirs someday, and I can't wait to see it, right? But what does that really show about ourselves? Because I've had to stamp that out of my own life at times. When someone has done me wrong and like, they're going to get it, and I hope they get it. Then I'm like, why did I even say that? How foolish of me. How stupid of me. How foolish of me to say, I really hope they get theirs since they gave it to me. That just shows I'm just as prideful and just as arrogant and just as selfish as maybe they were. And really when, and again, I, 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 there's times where I still struggle and you probably do too because you think of a, a bad scenario, a bad situation, and it's very easy in our human nature to think, man, I, hmm, I just want them to fail. <laughs> I want them to meet their demise and when they do, I'm going to be there rejoicing. That's not a Christian is it? That's not how a Christian should act. And that's, you know, Jesus wasn't on this earth long, but that's one thing I, I don't see in Jesus. I don't see in Paul. I don't see him when someone stumbles like, I knew you were going to do it. Ha ha. No. As a Christian, we're there to pick each other up. Again, this is a big one. You know, if you're celebrating someone else's failure or misfortune, you are no different than they are. And you can think you are all you want, but you are no different than they are. 
And you are definitely probably more prideful, more self-righteous than you want to admit. You're the type who likes to receive grace, but hates to dispense grace. Because all of us want grace, don't we? We want to receive what we don't deserve. But what about giving it to someone that doesn't deserve it? That's where we draw the line, right? We've all done it. I've done it. But again, what I'm trying to teach and preach and give illustrations of things that are going to help us all in our life, and again, so counterintuitive to the culture, because the culture, you celebrate someone else's failure, because it means that you can step over them to get your success. I'm just waiting for them to fail so I can finally get mine. Like, that's wrong. Here's a couple more, and then we're done with this. You obsess over the opinions of others, constantly wanting to people praise you and you know, what do they think of me in this situation? Another one, you are utterly convinced that only your opinion is the right one. Now, this might be really convicting for husbands and wives right here, but uh, you're utterly convinced that only your opinion is the right one. No one else can say anything. Now, listen, you know, the key to understanding our, our inner Pharisee is that he or she is all about performance. It's that, you know, hey, look what I did attitude. Look at what I have achieved. Now, again, we celebrate when someone achieves something and and performs well, but this is the hard thing for all of us to do, to stamp it out. Because going back to the the parable, on the flip side, as Violet was sharing with us already, the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much his eyes into heaven. Smote upon his breast, not in a prideful way, but God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I've messed up. I am foolish. I have failed so many times. Forgive me. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone, and this is where it comes to tonight, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased. But he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So it's that upside-down thinking in an upside-down world. The way down is actually up, and the way up is actually down. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is not about your performance. It's not about living up to a standard that can never be attained. It's about the heart. And Marcus made a great point earlier about the externals versus the internals, and that's really kind of where it flows. You see, the problem with the Pharisee in Jesus' day was their religion was based solely on externals and not the internal. It was there to impress other people, but not to please God. They love titles, they love recognition, they love to exalt themselves at the expense of others. But Luke 18, 14, hey, I'm telling you, here's the one that is more justified. Everyone that is exalting, that is puffing themselves up, will be put down. And the one that is humbling yourself will be exalted. And then we go back and, and parallel it with Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the meek. Again, they don't necessarily mean the same thing, but I think we can read into this text to understand what Jesus is talking about. Meekness, listen, it's understanding that we must humble ourselves before a holy God. Voluntarily, as we talked about, confessing sin, grieving over sin, because we realize that our sin affects a holy God. Meekness is about understanding that we are called to treat others better than we treat ourselves. It's not about a self-reliance. It's, it's more about giving up control to the only one who is in control. 
A lot of times Christians, young Christians, old Christians, often get mad at God when things don't go their way. And honestly, here's where it comes back to as we close it out. They're honestly, they're like partially trained horses (laughs) that don't fully trust their master and occasionally try to buck him off. I want to paraphrase this, but in Psalm 32, 8 and 9, the psalmist is saying that this, I will instruct and teach you in the way you should live. I'm going to guide and advise you with mine eye. Don't be as a horse or as a mule which have no understanding and and won't obey unless they are controlled by a bridle and a bit. And I think that's relative to us tonight. Don't be like that horse that won't listen, that won't obey. Look, as immature believers, sometimes God uh, must try to humble us, but he wants us to come freely, willingly to him. He is trying to train us to become meek. And as we mature, his word and and his pleasures become more sufficient in our life. Listen, an individual who is meek doesn't mean they are weak. It doesn't mean they give up power. Rather, they learn to use their power under control. So I close with this. Going back to that parous, the, uh, the Greek word for meek, talking about the medicine, the wind, uh, the horse. Does, does, does the medicine give up power to cure the sick? Or does it use its power in a controlled way? Does the wind give up power to push a ship across the sea? Or does it use its power in a controlled way? Does the horse give up power when broken to its owner's command? Or does it use its power in a controlled way? Again, the horse must be meeked. Still has the same strength, the same fire, the same passion, the same drive. But the difference, if there's a bridle, a bit, a saddle, the horse learns to use their power under control. To train a horse, you don't let them run wild. You don't cripple them. You teach them to use their strength under control. And that's what meekness is. It's strength under control. The key truth of this all, the closing truth is this. Jesus says the way up is down. Greatness is found in meekness. And it's characterized in our humility. And that's where we must must come to as we study the Sermon on the Mount. Understanding that the meek are the ones that actually inherit the earth. We would say in our day, in our culture, it's not the meek, it's not the, the gentle, it's not the ones that have learned to, to bridle and, and, and constrain their power and put it under control. No, it's the prideful individuals. It's the one that step on everyone else. Well, that's what culture says, but this isn't culture. This is Bible. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. They're the ones that I'm going to reward. They're the ones that are going to get the blessings. Not necessarily what you see in the world, but you're going to be more blessed by Jesus because you're living a life that is pleasing to him. Let's pray.